Welcome to another episode of An Offer You Can't Refuse. I'm your host, Ryan S. Pettengill, and today's episode is entitled, The Law is Bigger Than Money, But Only If the Law Works Hard Enough, The Fall of Charles Lucky Luciano. As you'll see, we're going to pick things up where we left them off with the intersection of law enforcement and organized crime. To remain relevant, law enforcers like Thomas E. Dewey had to have a stream of Mr. Biggs to take down, and after Dutch Schultz uh, went away, he needed a new target. By the mid-1930s, that target had become Lucky Luciano. The problem was, Lucky was a tough nut to crack. Arnold Rothstein had taught him well when it came to the art of the buffer. And more importantly, by 1932, Luciano had developed an outlet that uh, the likes of Johnny Torrio sorely lacked in the 1920s, an enforcement wing. What would come to be known as Murder Incorporated eliminated not only problem children like Dutch Schultz, but also would-be witnesses. So hanging Lucky with concrete testimonial evidence was going to be much easier to say than it was to do. But in the end, we'll see the fall of Luciano, and what will get him is basically greed. In addition to every other racket that he had perfected, by the early 30s, Luciano was the king of the prostitution industry in New York. And although he developed a sophisticated buffer zone, it wasn't quite sophisticated enough. In 1936, Dewey got another Mr. Big, and in the process, the Mafia lost one of its founding members for the moment. In any case, enjoy. As we've seen, Thomas Dewey's efforts were effective in bringing down Mr. Big, Dutch Schultz. But to remain relevant, he needed another Mr. Big to replace Schultz, and the most logical target is going to become Lucky Luciano. The problem is the structure that the commission made it made it very difficult to take him out. Luciano's outsourcing and the layers that he set up for the commission, they just worked brilliantly when it came to evading law enforcement. So Dewey's going to have to get a little bit more creative if he's going to triumph over Luciano. Now, if you think about it, the real brilliance of Lucky Luciano was the improvements that he made upon the organization that had been established by Rothstein and Torrio a generation earlier. And as we've seen, the establishment of the commission, it dialed back the violence and it provided order and a protocol with respect to territories and jurisdiction, um, maybe even what you might call a grievance policy, and, and certainly a flow chart when it came to authority within organizations. Uh, Luciano is going to retain Torrio's concept of a cartel where only insiders had the right to do business in various locations, but he learned immensely from the mistakes and the limitations of Torrio's structure. If you recall, Torrio's big problem was that he lacked an enforcement element of his organization, something that could keep outsiders at bay or punish insiders who refused to play by the rules. So with this in mind, Luciano set about to correct this flaw. Now, before we go any further, I need to switch gears just a little bit. Because if you think back in our series, you, you might remember that I told you that the commission was really based on a Wall Street corporate model. By 1925, Henry Ford was seen as the quintessential example of successful capitalism. And there are a variety of different reasons for this, but one of his greatest claims to fame was his centralization of production. 
His Ford Rouge facility in Dearborn, Michigan, employed close to 100,000 workers by 1929. It was like a city onto itself. But Ford Motor was incredibly compartmentalized. It was broken down into various departments, everything from marketing to recruiting a workforce. If you know anything about Ford, uh, you know that he felt that the world would just be a better place if it followed his lead. And like many of his era, Ford worried about the fate of traditional American values in a world that was ever modernizing and rapidly changing, especially with the onset of immigration in the early 20th century. Ford wanted his workers to speak English, save their money, keep tidy homes, and comport themselves with dignity and respect while they were in public. If you have any familiarity with the history of Ford Motor, you can tell me that one of the other things that made him famous was his $5 day. Now, $5 was unheard of when it comes to a working man's salary per day during this period. And when Ford introduced it in 1914, uh, there was nowhere else that you were going to get that kind of money anywhere. So what you get are workers from all around the world that are flocking to Dearborn and Detroit to work for Henry Ford. But not everybody got this $5 sum. In order to qualify, workers had to meet certain social expectations. To qualify workers for the $5 day and ensure that they were living their lives up to Ford standards, the company launched the Ford Sociological Department. Now, the Sociological Department would make house calls and check up on workers and if changes needed to be made, the social workers made them and followed up with the family at a later date. This is a good example of the compartmentalization I was talking about just a minute ago. And there are others. And to ensure a smooth operation, Ford launched what came to be known as the service department. Now, this was essentially his internal security force and later sort of became like an actual private police force. It also developed a notorious reputation for violence against workers, activists, and anyone daring to try to bring a union inside one of Ford's shops. The company charged ex-con, ex-boxer Harry Bennett with leading the service department. And Bennett went about recruiting enforcers for the department. And many times, as we'll see in later episodes here, these heavies had some loose affiliation with organized crime. Many years later, historians would note the nefarious nature of the Ford Service Department, but for the 1920s and a good chunk of the 1930s, this just came off as another brilliant move by Ford. It enforced the company line, and it helped Ford's organization work in a manner that he designed it to work, uninterrupted. But as we've noted, on more than one occasion, the organization that Lucky Luciano built was modeled after Wall Street, like a corporate example. So breaking functions down into departments appealed to Luciano, especially given the flaws that he saw in Rothstein and Antorio's operations in the 1920s. What would come to be called Murder Incorporated was the enforcement department of the commission. And it was designed to do what Torrio's operation simply could not, enforce the rules and punish those who refused to play by them. 
The origins of the gang, and I'm being intentional when I say the word gang, it's, it's, it's a gang the same way that you think of one of these families that we've been discussing. They go all the way back to the Lansky Siegel outfit, which was established in the early 1920s. As we've seen, upon the founding of the commission, Lansky, Siegel, and other Jewish associates of these Italian bosses were brought inside the organization and worked closely with the likes of Luciano, Genovese, and Costello. And after the commission was established, Lansky and Siegel more or less disbanded their operation and were absorbed into Luciano's inner circle. Siegel, however, would cobble together a collection of enforcers, originally not for any greater purpose, but this assortment of heavies would become Murder Incorporated. Two Jewish hoodlums that had a loose relationship with Bugsy Siegel were Louis Lepke Buckalter and Jacob Gura Shapiro. Buckalter had just been released from Sing Sing Prison in 1922 for an attempted burglary when he teamed up with Shapiro to infiltrate the Garment Trade Union in Brooklyn. Now, the two of them demanded a weekly payment from factory owners in exchange for friendly labor relations and on the flip side of that coin they charged workers for kickback fees in exchange for finding them not only jobs but cushier jobs they also demonstrated a clear ability to carry out orders and enforce the will of those who paid them and they became prime candidates to fill the role of enforcer that luciano had been looking for by 1929 buckalter had a casual relationship with mob boss Vincent Mangano. One of Mangano's lieutenants was a guy by the name of Albert Anastasia. Buckalter would go on to tap the talents of Anastasia for Murder Incorporated, and he's going to come to earn this nickname Lord High Executioner for the role that he played not only within the organization, but the effectiveness and the efficiency that he carried out his orders. Buckalter was also friendly with Tommy, Tommy Three Fingers, Lucchese, who got that nickname due to a deformation on his hand, giving him only three fingers, but nobody ever called him three fingers to his face. Abe Kid Twist Rellis, a Jewish hoodlum from Brooklyn, who earned that nickname because of his propensity for strangulation, rounded out the foursome, thus giving Luciano his enforcement wing of the Mafia. And for the good of the order, Bugsy Siegel, who had interests and responsibilities elsewhere, occasionally came along for the ride. Murder Incorporated was essentially a murder-for-hire branch of the Mafia, and it specialized in taking out misfits and others who refused to play by the established rules. And that made it very difficult, at least from the perspective of how it made its profits, than other families of the Mafia. How things would work is a boss would put out a contract to Buckalter, who in turn would carry out the hit for a fee. So they're not earning money through extortion or gambling or anything of the traditional sort of organized crime. This is basically carrying out or outsourcing jobs for these people who are earning their profits in that manner. Generally, the fee is going to range from $1,000 to $5,000, depending on how big the target was. Now, that's a lot of money in today's day, but back then, that's the equivalent of $17,000 to $83,000 in today's currency. 
if the hit was a inside job, you know, a member of a family's internal organization, you didn't exactly need a consultation. It wouldn't exactly be necessary. But if this was a member of another family, let alone a higher ranking official within another family, you would need a conference and you'd have to have a green light to take that individual out. Buckalter based his operation out of Rosie Gold's candy store on the corner of Saratoga and uh, Livonia Avenue in Brooklyn. The operation consisted of a foursome, but Buckalter was always on the lookout for new talent. He paid a regular salary for his best men as a way to kind of keep them on retainer. And he was also quick to hire talented lawyers when and where his men got themselves into trouble. Buckalter's operation struck fear in the hearts of criminals all throughout the country. Hitmen were known to be vicious killers, and, and some used ice picks and other blunt instruments as their killing tools. They were also known not to be above the use of torture. And this notoriety did not escape the attention of elected officials, including none other than Thomas Dewey. Now, we've actually reached a point in the chronology of this series where audio recording devices are a reality, and I always like to allow my classes to hear things from the horse's mouth. So check out Dewey's thoughts when it comes to Murder, Inc. During the past two years, five former members of this gang have been shot. And now, a respectable citizen has been killed by bullets apparently intended for another Lepke associate. Lepke must be found dead or alive. So Murder Incorporated is very much on the radar of law enforcement officials, including very high-ranking ones like Thomas Dewey. But when it came to the targets of Murder, Inc., occasionally it would be a high-profile gangster, but more often than not, it would be either an actual informant, someone who was known to be working with the authorities and ratting, or, or a suspicion. A suspected snitch. For example, when it was learned that Abe Wagner implicated the Commission on Criminal Activities in 1932, Murder, Inc. killers tracked him down to St. Paul, Minnesota, and they shot him in the back. And even being suspected of being an informant could have grave consequences. But probably the biggest job uh, of the, the, the history of Murder, Inc., uh, at least by the, by the standards of the 1930s, was the case involving Dutch Schultz. As we discussed in our last episode, Dutch Schultz had been in the crosshairs of Thomas Dewey going all the way back to the early 1930s. And Dutch was lucky enough to beat the first case the first time around, but Dewey kept at it, and at least in the mind of Schultz, the only course of action uh, to proceed was to kill Dewey. Luciano was less than thrilled with intra-mob violence, and the assassination of such a high-profile public official was simply beyond the pale. And similar to wanting to take out a made man, the assassination of Dewey required a vote from the commission. Dutch presented his case to the commission, and the commission issued its vote, and they over overruled Dutch Schultz. Being overruled by the commission didn't stop Schultz from going about making arrangements to take out Dewey. He vowed to take him out himself, if need be. 
For his part, Luciano feared that being the loose cannon that Dutch Schultz was, he could do some major damage, not just to him and people around him, but to the entire operation. And Luciano and the commission are actually going to vote to take out Dutch Schultz. And as I was talking about last time, on October 24, 1935, hitmen Mendy Weiss and Charles Charlie the Bug Workman tracked Schultz down to the palace chop house where they shot him and two of his bodyguards. So as you can see, whether it was a case of stopping someone from testifying against the operation or punishing a rowdy member of the organization, Murder Incorporated was effective at enforcing the rules. Even after Luciano had departed from the scene, Murder Inc. disciplined the organization and gave it staying power that Torrio lacked a generation earlier. In time, however, Murder Inc. would have to turn on one of their own. While it's true that these underworld leaders were brilliant in their own ways, it can sometimes be easy to forget that they were hardened criminals who caused real pain to people that they preyed upon. By 1936, Luciano was the king of New York City's prostitution industry, and his associate Lansky was not a fan. Um, there's a lot of reasons that made prostitution a risky business. Uh, the, the, there, there were health issues. Uh, your your quote-unquote workers, they ran the risk of becoming pregnant. And there were all kinds of STDs that you had to worry about. You needed doctors. And Luciano largely ignored Lansky's warning. And, and it's advice that he probably should have paid better attention to. But it must be said that Luciano set up a brilliant operation within his prostitution rings. Pimps, madams, prostitutes were all basically considered independent contractors by Luciano, who paid tribute um, um, to him for protection, political connections, and when and where necessary, discretion to operate on a semi-open basis. By 1936, Dewey had turned his attention away from Schultz and was now squarely focused on taking down Luciano. His big break is going to come when his team noticed a trend. All of the prostitutes that New York arrested had, had really one thing in common. They were all served by the same bail bondsman, and this bail bondsman clearly had ties to the mafia. Upon questioning the bail bondsman, this led to another important discovery. Bookers for these prostitutes had a direct connection to Luciano. So Dewey charged the booker and forced him to talk. And the, and the guy agreed to wear a wire. Now, you have to understand that what you and I think of as surveillance today was very fluid from a legal perspective, meaning we haven't really exactly nailed down what's illegal and what's on the up and up. But Dewey took advantage of a lot of the gray area of this area of the law. His agents are going to listen to dozens and dozens of hours of conversations. Uh, these are intimate conversations between Luciano and some of his more intimate associates. And eventually, Luciano himself was implicated. Dewey's going to file charges, uh, and, and those charges are not going to be on, on organized crime. What's really going to hang Luciano is the, the role that he plays within the prostitution ring of New York City.
Hot Springs, Arkansas had always been an important hideout for the Mafia. Capone frequently hid out in Hot Springs. Now here's a blast from the past for you. Oni Madden ran the Southern Club, which was a speakeasy in Hot Springs, and it served as a hangout for gangsters that were out in the lamb. Now, if you think back to a previous episode, Madden had basically been run out of New York, and he was running the Southern Club. Uh, basically, it was about as close to a retirement as you got when you worked for the mob. As a general rule, you could do whatever you wanted to do in Hot Springs, as long as you didn't bring criminal elements to town along with you. So, Luciano believed that if he could keep this case in Arkansas, if he could hide out in Arkansas, he could eventually buy off authorities and there would be enough time that passed back up in New York and everything would blow over. Meanwhile, he continued to make millions in New York City. He had Vito Genovese uh, making millions through the heroin trade. Uh, Lansky was overseeing the largest collection of casinos in the country. And finally, Frank Costello was working his political and legal connections to free Lucky. So things are not going entirely bad, uh, even though Luciano's on the lam. For his part, Dewey tried to rally the public to his cause and pressure Arkansas officials by characterizing Luciano, in, in his words, public enemy number one. Dewey's also going to involve the press. He accused Hot Springs of being soft on crime, and the result was a pressure war between Dewey and Luciano. Dewey is trying to present Hot Springs and Arkansas generally as being soft on crime. Meanwhile, Luciano is trying to bring this historic antagonistic relationship between, you know, the South and Northerners telling them how they should live. And caught in the middle of this is the governor, a guy by the name of Junius Marion uh, Futrell. Eventually, Governor Futrell is going to kind of cave in to Dewey, and he's going to send state troopers to arrest Lucky Luciano. In April 1936, Luciano will surrender, and he's going to post bail, but he only had a few days to really prepare for the case with Dewey. And Dewey's going to call prostitutes from all around the city for their testimonies. He's going to present 68 witnesses in total, and, and these witnesses are going to provide absolutely shocking testimony, outrage which will make national headlines. Let me give you the testimony of one of these prostitutes. It was one Florence Brown, but as she was known within her circles, it was Cokie Flo. Brown disclosed the fact that she received cocaine from Luciano, and that's how she got her nickname, Cokie Flo. And she also pointed out that Luciano used drugs like any effective pimp to control the girls. All of this puts Luciano in a very difficult position. So the Fifth Amendment, the forbidding of self-incrimination. There have been numerous trials of the century and many of those trials have been presented as situations where the prosecution had gobs and gobs of damning evidence against the accused. O.J. Simpson comes to mind. Uh, Casey Anthony in Florida is another good example. But you rarely see the accused take the stand to clear their name. Now, part of the reason for this involves the ability of the prosecution to cross-examine cross 
and the potential for perjury, at, at least at the very least. Very, very few defense attorneys would tell you that it's a good idea to have the defendant, especially in a case like this, to take the stand. Anyway, Luciano decided to take the stand all the same, and this was against his own lawyer's advice. And it was a big risk. Keep in mind, it's not just him that's more or less on trial. He could, he could destroy everything, not just personally, but for the entire commission. Now, Lucky's trial was a disaster. Luciano was smart, but he had no idea what he was doing in court, and Dewey forced him to admit that on more than one occasion he had actually broken the silence of Omerta. He informed, if you recall, he was brought in on drug charges. This is before he had established the commission, but he was brought in on drug charges, and uh, he informed on a cohort after being arrested for being involved in the drug trade. Uh, Dewey then accused him of being a stool pigeon, and Lucky answered by saying some people had come to him, the authorities had come to him, and in his words, he, to he told them what he knew. Over the course of time, and when the trial wraps up, Luciano's going to be found guilty. He'll be found guilty on 62, uh, uh, 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. And in the process, Dewey's going to become a household name. Similar to Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century, uh, who was known as the Trust Buster, Dewey's going to become known as the Crime Buster. He's going to go on to become elected as the governor of New York, and in the 1940s, he'll actually make a very important run for president of the United States. Back to Luciano. His conviction led to a 50-plus year sentence, and now his big challenge is, how do I figure out how to run this crime empire from prison? So he's got a crew on the outside in New York. Lansky's really at the helm here, and they're working to free him. But for the time, uh, this crew is funneling enough money to kind of pay prison guards off, and Lucky's standard of living on the inside is relatively nice. At least by prison standards, he's, he's not too bad off. But back to running this empire. What Luciano has to do is name a person to run things on the outside while he's away. And for the time being, he's going to settle upon Vito Genovese. This incident involving Genovese is going to establish the idea that no one is above the family. Meaning that while it's important that you're away and you can still basically run your family operation from prison, you do need to name a temporary replacement at least for the time being. Vito Genovese was the acting boss, but Frank Costello is a very powerful consigliere. The situation was this. Luciano called the shots from prison. Genovese and Costello carried out the orders. But for his part, Genovese was not without his own problems. He had a love life, and in order to, quote-unquote, win the love of his life, he had to dispose of her husband. She came with a little bit of baggage, if you can see what I mean. So ultimately, Genovese uh, basically has the guy killed, and he's he set up on impending murder charges. And ultimately, it's going to be our friend Dewey that charges Genovese, and the heat's going to become so intense that he's going to flee. He's going to go to Italy. He's going to take refuge in Naples. Enter into our conversation Francesco Castiglia, a.k.a. Frank Costello. Now, we talked a little bit about Costello in the past, but for the good of the order, he was one of these people that emigrated to the United States as a child, and all the way back in 1895. And we've seen him come into the world 
dominated by Joe Masseria, and he's actually going to start out as part of the Morello gang. Eventually, this organization, as you should know by now, is going to evolve into the Genovese crime family. This was a pretty obvious decision that Luciano's going to have to make, but eventually he's going to settle on Costello when it comes to naming a new acting boss. And as we're about to see, Costello is going to have the weight of the world on his shoulders when it comes to the fate of organized crime in the U.S. Over the course of his career, Frank Costello is going to earn himself the nickname the Prime Minister. His ability to find people and meet them in the middle and find peaceful accords is really going to work wonders for the world of organized crime, and in so many ways he's the voice of moderation. But for his part, Costello understood that he needed to dial down the attention of the government and law enforcement officials especially. So he tried to lower his, as well as the organization's profile, with respect to being the target of law enforcement. To do this, he's going to follow a policy of live and let live. Much like Luciano, Costello understood violence was bad for business. He's going to form a close alliance with Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, and Willie Moretti. Eventually, these individuals will go on to become the enforcement wing of the mafia in, in their own right. But for right now, Costello was always the best informed man at the meetings. He was exceptionally good at analyzing complex problems, and Costello wanted to work with law enforcers again, the same way that Johnson and Rothstein had done a generation earlier. And he developed talent for making police officers allies, and he was the master at the $100 handshake. Frank Costello comes along at an interesting and critical time in the history of the Mafia. His forte was gambling, and like Luciano, he was effective at thinking outside the box. It was Costello who saw the potential in bringing slot machines into New York as a new form of gambling. And when Mayor LaGuardia ran the Mafia out of New York City, Costello found a new home for them in New Orleans with the help of Governor Huey Long. Upon his Genovese appointment, Costello inherited the waterfront, and he's going to approach it very differently, especially with respect to uh, gambling. Um, this, this waterfront is going to be very violent, and his big task, at least order, uh, earlier on, is to organize the saloons, the brothels. Uh, you don't know necessarily what I'm talking about when it comes to the shape-up, but th think, think about unions and how workers are chosen, and it'll make a little bit more sense. He's also got to bring in these loan sharks. All of these are rackets that thrived along the docks. And the Genovese fi crime family generally is going to prosper under Costello's leadership. But for the moment, the Prime Minister has a problem. And that problem is a member of Murder, Inc. Abe Rellis, if you recall, was one of the original members of that organization. And according to legend, a rival gangster had raped his girlfriend and uh, Rellis got sloppy in taking revenge. Dewey's going to indict him on murder charges, but Rellis is going to cut a deal with the prosecutor. Rellis is going to agree to name names, and over the course of time, he's going to name 50 names in exchange for a deal to walk. 
Now, these are not just hitmen and nobodies within bigger, broader organizations. These are names like Albert Anastasia, Bugsy Siegel, and, and other high-ranking mafiosi officials. And he also gives Dewey everything he needs to prosecute Murder, Inc. specifically. So as you can see, Costello's big issue is dealing with the fallout from Rellis, who can, can, can take down the whole operation if he chooses to. This is generally going to fall on Frank Costello. And by the fall of 1941, the fate of the five families really kind of rests in his hands, and he knows that he's got to find a way to take uh, Rellis out. So what happens is he begins to turn up the pressure on his affiliates all throughout the city. He discovers the hotel where Rellis is being held. He's under protection, armed guards. But the Prime Minister is able to find a way to buy off these guards, and he and his men are able to infiltrate the hotel where they push Rellis out of a high-rise window. He's going to fall to his death. Now, they're, they're able to make it look like an accident, not necessarily a, a real intentional accident, but uh, it's, it's enough to, to have plausible deniability. And as we're so fond of doing in this series, if you want a vivid physical representation of this, Making of the Mob, uh, Volume 1 anyway, has a, has a very good scene of the untimely demise of Abe Rellis. But back to Dewey for a second. Taking out Rellis destroyed his case, and on the flip side of the coin, it solidified Frank Costello's role as the head of the Genovese crime family. It demonstrates to Luciano that his system works. So where are we? Where are we by 1941? Well, the Mafia was born out of the world that Prohibition created. And by 1930, it was flush with cash, but it had a new problem. It had attracted the attention of law enforcement officials, some of whom were really trying to make a name for themselves in their own right. Even as Dewey unloaded on them and came after the organization with everything he had, the commission was able to prove that it had staying power. And the development of an enforcement wing, Murder, Inc., made it more challenging to collect witnesses and keep them alive long enough for them to testify. At the same time, the structure and organization of the commission not only allowed for leaders like Luciano to run their outfits from prison, it also allowed for capable and talented underbosses like Frank Costello to fill in in the stead of an absence like the, of the likes of Luciano. So by 1941, it was very clear that the Mafia wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. I hope you've enjoyed this intersection of the history of organized crime and the evolution of law enforcement in the United States. Let's take some time to roll some credits. If you want to know more about the history of the Ford Motor Company, especially from the vantage point of the $5 day, see The $5 Day by Stephen Meyer. Nelson Lichtenstein offers up a good overview of Ford's service department, so for more on that, check out Lichtenstein's The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. Richard Norton Smith has written an incredibly comprehensive biography of Thomas E. Dewey. It's entitled Thomas E. Dewey and His Time, so if you want to know more about the governor of New York, that's your one-stop shop. I found a lot of useful information on Murder Incorporated in Burton B. Turkus 
and Sid Fetter's Murder, Inc., so that's a useful starting point for more on the enforcement wing of the Mafia. See Richard Cohen's Tough Jews for additional backgrounds on people like Lepke Buckalter, Abe Rellis, and some of the other members of Murder, Inc. For more on Frank Costello, check out Anthony M. DiStefano's Top Hoodlum. It's a biography, but it does a nice job of situating the context of the Mafia at this critical moment in its history. Our conversation on the Mafia in the 1930s will continue in the next episode, which is entitled Goons and Ginks and Company Finks. In it, we'll learn about the ways in which organized crime tried to infiltrate and profit from the emerging social movement to empower workers. I mentioned this a bit earlier, but the Mafia will emerge from the 1920s with enormous financial reserves, and many are going to look for new revenue avenues in a post-prohibition era. And we'll see the emergence of loan sharking as a major racket, but we'll also see how much money organized crime was able to extort from the rank and file of the labor movement. For right now, I hope that you're enjoying this series. Please follow us and offer You Can't Refuse on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd be so kind as to give us a review, I'd very much appreciate it. You can do that by selecting the show, not under the episodes, and then looking directly under the follow button. We appreciate all the feedback we can get. Take care, everybody.